Hello to all my fellow one-on-one history podcast listeners out there. I hope all of you are doing well, no matter where you live in the world. And it certainly is great to be back on the air. Uh, Hard to believe that this is the uh, first weekend of August. And it is also hard to believe that this uh, coming week, or the start of the uh, coming week, will represent the first full week of August. You know, just recently I uh, saw where um, I have uh, viewers now in in uh, Chile, in South America, and I want to say uh, welcome aboard. Uh, the nation of Chile now marks the uh, 74th nation um, where uh, my podcasts can be viewed uh, worldwide. Now, I'm not uh, flaunting the number of nations that I that I can be found in around the world, but I want to say thanks to all of you, uh, my fellow listeners, no matter where you live, whether it's in the United States, uh, the United Kingdom, France, uh, Canada, as far away as Singapore. Uh, I want to thank all of you uh, for taking an interest in what I've uh, been able to um, share with you all through uh, podcasts or uh, podcast uh, segment uh, book discussions, uh, regardless of the book topics that have uh, been uh, discussed. But I just want to say thank you uh, to all of you um, whom have uh, helped make this uh, happen. Without you guys, I don't know where I would be. Uh, But, you know, I probably might be doing something else in terms of uh, sharing uh, what I enjoy with regards to history. But I really have enjoyed uh, doing it through uh, podcasting, uh, through Anchor Spotify. And I'll uh, continue to do just that. And uh, somewhere down the road, I'm sure I will uh, pick up uh, nation number 75, uh, wherever that may be, uh, we will certainly welcome them in. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, thank you uh, to those of you who live in uh, Chile uh, for for um, being interested in the uh, various uh, book topic uh, podcast uh, series that I have done uh, within the last uh, three years, including now. And again, I will say this uh, one more time. I don't say any of that to uh, for flaunting purpose purposes under no circumstances whatsoever. But I do appreciate all of you um, having uh, enthusiasm uh, for listening to what has been discussed, especially with all the um, negativity or sadness that's going on in the world today. Uh, my objective with these uh, podcast uh, book topic series have been to uh, give you all the best stories there are, even though I may know that some of those stories that have been discussed, um, they may not always have the best endings, but at the same time, they also are to serve as reminders of the incidents in which the times that they occurred and how we can learn from those incidents so that history does not repeat itself again. I've often heard that a lot lately, and I even hear about it when my wife and I go to Williamsburg, where um, docents, not just the docents, but those uh, individuals who portray a certain uh, character will often say that, you know, we are here today to not only uh, learn about the past, but learn about how we can take from what we've learned in the past going forward in the present as well as into the future, so that uh, whatever happened in the past does not repeat itself in the present state nor in the future. So uh, history, uh, learning about history is an ongoing uh, process that never ends. And while, yes, there are lots of uh, good things to learn about, we do have to remind ourselves that there are sometimes some not-so-good things 
or, or some not so unpleasant truths that have to be um, revealed that um, that need to be shared. But at the same time, it's all about how we can come together to learn about to learn about the past so that um, we have a better understanding of it and how we are to try not to uh, make the same um, mistakes that uh, a previous generation from a from a different era allowed to uh, have happen. Well, I do know this, that we are not far from uh, ending this uh, book topic uh, podcast series of uh, Men of Patriotism, Courage, and Enterprise, Fort Meigs in the War of 1812 by Larry L. Nelson. We are now um, nearing the end of what is the, um, I, maybe I shouldn't give it away, but I'll go ahead and tell you all now that we are really, in a sense, nearing the end of the uh, second siege attempt of Fort Meigs. So in this uh, podcast segment episode, we are going to learn about um, the timeline from late July of 1813 going into the beginning of October of 1813. And we will learn uh, if General William Henry Harrison does get the wish that he's been desiring. If I'm not mistaken, uh, for some time he's been um, setting his eyes on Canada. He wanted to invade Canada not long after... um, He wanted to invade Canada just before the um, terrible uh, misfortunes occurred at the uh, River Raisin, or what was uh, then Frenchtown, now present-day Monroe, Michigan, had um, I really do have to wonder had uh, had General uh, James Winchester not um, had he uh, retreated instead of um, trying to set up a, a camp step or or how do I say it had he retreated versus um, not going about setting up a camp at the River Raisin one has to wonder if Harrison would have been able to have advanced into Canada sooner versus later. On the other hand, had Harrison advanced sooner into Canada, would he have had a successful mission? So we do have to wonder, will General William Henry Harrison get his ultimate wish, and that is to be able to make his way into Canada with the uh, number of troops at his uh, disposal? Well, let's find that out. But before we can find out whether or not General Harrison does get the wish in invading Canada, we do need to uh, start with where things stand around late July of 1813 as to whether or not the Indians and the British troops will be successful this go-around and um, and getting revenge on um, taking uh, on uh, taking a uh, complete control of Fort Meigs, given that they were um, repulsed or uh, driven away from from the uh, first uh, siege attempt. So let's let's begin uh, with our first leadoff question to this uh, podcast sup- episode segment of uh, Men of Patriotism, Courage, and Enterprise. Here we go. Uh, did Indian forces take on a pattern very similar from the first siege attempt with regards to to strategical fighting tactics, which uh, would have taken place between July 21st and the 24th of 1813, over a four-day course? Uh, The answer, folks, uh, is yes. Like the first uh, siege attempt, 
Indian warriors did the same thing. They went about nearing the stockade, a.k.a. barrier, where firing directly into Fort Meigs was doable. Okay, so they are, looks like they're, some, they're gaining some ground here. However, the American forces, like the first go-around, were not, um, they weren't caught off guard. They uh, were able to drive back the Indians via means of uh, musket fire, including limited use of cannon volley. So in other words, you know, here again, um, General Harrison might have a little bit more, well, I would say uh, not, General Harrison's been in and out of uh, Fort Meigs uh, at this point, but uh, maybe it's fair to say that, yes, Brigadier General Green Clay would have had a fair number of, um, or a fair amount of uh, cannon ammunition, maybe a little bit more so than the first than from the first siege. However, even if he's got more at his disposal here, it doesn't mean he should automatically use it left and right like there's no tomorrow. So in other words, rely more so on um, musket firing, on musket firing um, tactics. We will use the cannon, but we will only use it on a limited basis. In other words, let's not launch, let's not use all the fireworks just yet against the enemy. So yes, same pattern. I would have thought maybe by now that the Indians would have tried something a little differently instead of nearing the stockade, that maybe they would try something different. The early morning of July 24th saw British leaders uh, go about redirecting uh, their troops, boats, and equipment to the South Bank, where they chose to concentrate on launching an assault against the southern flank, a.k.a. side of uh, Fort Meigs, the, the southern um, side of Fort uh, in other words, British troops were going to uh, launch an assault against the southern flank or the uh, southern side of uh, Fort Meigs, but nothing surfaced. Okay, well, that's good. And on one hand, uh, if you're on the American side, nothing has surfaced. But uh, despite the fact that nothing surfaced, uh, Brigadier General uh, Clay's forces remained very vigilant. As a matter of fact, they were so vigilant, folks, that by around 2 a.m., uh, on the morning of July 25th, every soldier at Fort Meigs was positioned along the stockade wall with two to three muskets fully loaded by their side. In the event an actual assault along against the fort went forward, come dawn of July 25th, the British and their Indian allies are still pursuing the, the same tactics of coming forward only to fall back. What they appear to really want the Americans to do is to open the gates and send troops out of Fort Meigs to follow the Indians into the woods, only to get massacred, like what happened um, to um, Colonel William Dudley's um, forces uh, from the first siege when they um, had all the momentum on their side. They had... Um, they had uh, done everything there was at their um, at their disposal. They um, they basically ruptured. You know, they had ruptured eleven cannon. They had um, 
they had uh, stripped the British uh, color flags. They did everything, but yet they were so insistent on chasing the Indians. And what do you know? 650 of, of uh, Colonel William Dudley's troops, including uh, Colonel Dudley himself, you know, who was um, shot and lost his life, um, many of them were uh, either shot, wounded, or, um, or killed, or, or even worse, taken prisoner, as what we learned from a previous episode. So really, it's fair to say that the um, British uh, troop forces, including their Indian allies, by pursuing this game of, um, by pursuing this tactical strategy of coming forward only to fall back, their ultimate objective was to um, was to find a way to get the Americans to open the gates of Fort Meigs to send their own men out of the fort to chase down the British and the Indians, only to not come, not only to not come back alive. But it is fair to say that the um, American troop forces held their ground strong and the fact and the matter of the fact you know to think that each of these troops had two to three muskets fully loaded by their side what does that tell you right there okay when you when one musket is is out of ammunition you need to be ready to go with another musket on your side because you know you don't you may not have time to run back to the nearest depot station to get um more cartridges and and so forth, you know, no, you need to have more than just one musket at your, um, by your side. Uh, in the event, say one musket doesn't, um, if there's an internal issue with it, you've always got your backup right, by, right next to you. So having extra muskets by your side in the event an assault takes place is, um, an absolute must. Uh, whom advised uh, General Harrison that another siege on Fort Meigs had begun? His name is uh, Captain Joseph McCune, or McCun, M-C-C-U-N-E. Captain uh, McCun also served the role or duty of a messenger, which allowed him to get the news out quickly. Okay, and you know... It's easy to assume that, okay, if the messenger is the one that's uh, spreading the news to it, uh, to the inner circle of officers, that it's just a messenger or a dispatch rider. Well, it, it turns out that even um, soldiers, not just soldiers, but officers, regardless of their rank, have uh, all the means of being able to serve in the capacity of uh, being a messenger. General Harrison learned about the Second Siege's beginnings while in the process of gathering large group of uh, reinforcements at Lower Sandusky. Governor Meggs himself was also involved in calling out all available Ohio militiamen. If reinforcements were needed, per Captain McCoon's findings, Fort Meggs could get relieved anywhere from two to three days out. That's not bad, but at the same time, a lot of things could happen in, in a two to three day time span if, say, those reinforcements did not make it um, within that uh, proper um, timeline uh, guide frame. Now, on at around 4 p.m. on July 25th, or roughly around 4 p.m. on July 25th, loud gunfire could be heard about a mile away from Fort Meigs along the Sandusky Road, which included hearing noise, uh, commotion of Indians, 
However, speculation begins to surface where a likelihood of troop reinforcements making their way to Fort Meigs had come under attack by uh, the Indians and the British. So if you've got speculation now uh, surfacing, that means that there's all kinds of uh, questions that could, you know, lead to, say, circumstantial evidence or circumstantial answers, you know, Speculation is basically 50-50 hindsight, but maybe it's fair to say that we really need to get to the truth of this matter now as to how the American military under Brigadier General um, Green Clay is going to respond going forward. In other words, is he going to um, send out these reinforcements? In other words, is he going to open the gates to allow the reinforcements in? You know, on one hand, you would think that that would be an appropriate thing to do, but if there are Indians nearby the fort, which it sounds like that's the case, one has to wonder, if those gates are opened, who's not to say that an enemy could, that the enemy themselves could manage to uh, launch a surprise attack? Anything is possible. All speculation, but don't uh, leave anything on the table to rule out. So shortly after the heavy gunfire had erupted around 4 p.m. on the 25th, uh, did Brigadier General Green Clay call a meeting into action involving all of his senior officers? Yes, he did. And this is a good, um, a good time to uh, bring a meeting in uh, with regards to your office, with regards to officers in your inner circle. However, um, this is where um, this particular situation, though, is going to be one where uh, not all the officers are unified. But in the end, but in the end, there won't be a mutiny. That's a good thing. You know, it's one thing for soldiers or sailors to engage in a mutinous activity, but what about officers engaging in anything that's considered mutinous against the um, against the superior commanding officer? If that happens, then how can an army alone even function? Well, again, shortly after uh, heavy gunfire had erupted around 4 p.m. on July 25th, uh, did Brigadier General Green Clay call a meeting into action involving all the senior officers? Uh, yes, but a majority of those senior officers favored opening uh, Fort Meigs's gates, thus allowing a group of troops from within to go directly to the source regarding where those reinforcements stood. So in other words, the majority of the uh, senior officers want the gates open so that, so that uh, say, a team of uh, 25 or 50 soldiers could leave the fort, track down uh, where the reinforcements stood and be able to escort them in uh, to, into, uh, into uh, the inside of uh, Fort Meigs. All of that sounds good, but here again, you let, the sol you, you let a group of soldiers out now, and let's say you did let out about 30 at most. Who's not to say that, number one, they could, uh, they could be caught in the middle of a surprised attack against um, Indian warriors and British troops, but who's not to say that even maybe half of them would 
would return alive and not just half of them returning alive but being able to bring back um, all of the uh, reinforcements that may have been uh, supposedly attacked on by the Indians. So this is a matter of, to me, a matter of national security from within the fort. It's not so much about what's best for the troops, but really this is about what's best um, for the fort as a whole. And one of the reasons this um, this needs to be discussed even more so is because past experiences from the first siege of Fort Meigs involving the aftermath of Colonel William Dudley's brigade and how 650 of those um, troops, including um, not all of them died, but Colonel William Dudley did, you know, had Colonel William Dudley retreated instead, instead of trying to come to the um, aid of um, Major um, Isaac uh, Shelby, I know, yes, it's not right to um, to neglect or um, place one of your other fellow um, officers and his uh, unit in uh, harm's way, but at the same time, you may not always be in a situation where you're able to come to your um, partner's aid. It's a double-edged sword that either works for you or against you, but uh, Brigadier General Green Clay learned, he knew very well um, the ramifications and the consequences of what had happened from the first siege of Fort Meigs, even though we emerged victorious. But I think we could have emerged even more victoriously had it not been for uh, Colonel William uh, Dudley's um, disaster. So, yes, the aftermath of uh, Colonel William Dudley's brigade and the consequences that followed there led Brigadier General Clay to decide not go going forward and opening the gates simply in part because he feared that the troops within the fort ran the risk of getting lured, you know, getting lured, getting um, sucked into um, a bad uh, scheme, getting lured in meaning that they're going to fall for the bait or they have a strong likelihood of falling for, for the bait. And that's really what happened during the midst of the first siege when uh, the Indians and the uh, British troops ran towards the woods for protection what were they doing? They were luring um, Colonel William Dudley's troops, whom had all that momentum on their side. They were luring them in the midst of their momentum into the woods where nearly 81% of them either died, killed, or wounded, taken prisoner. 81% folks, just over three-fourths of that um, unit, never uh, were able to, um, many of them probably never made it back. Because uh, I, I do know that we talked about uh, how they were sent uh, northward up uh, around the Huron River that was part of the uh, prisoner exchange. But still, it, it's just a, it's a lesson. Um, in other words, you know, Colonel um, Brigadier General Green Clay is not trying to, he doesn't want to repeat history again. He's learning from the past so that he doesn't make the same mistake in the present as well as uh, making any mistakes that ha could have uh, major ramifications in the future. So, so in other words, yes, he, um, he uh, fears that if the troops within the fort, um, if the gates were opened, he feared that the troops within the fort did run the risk of getting lured by going outside. And so 
basically, folks, uh, no detachment or group was sent. The fort, in the eyes of uh, Brigadier General Green Clay, would have been far... The, the state of uh, Fort Meigs would have been far more vulnerable if the gates were uh, open. So, you know, yes, he's got officers in the inner circle whom object to this, but in the end, they were smart enough not to cross him and engage in a, um, in a mutiny, or that is a revolt where they would have wanted... Um, Brigadier General Green Clay removed altogether. So, you know, this is a good situation where, yes, officers may not always agree with um, one another's uh, decisions, but at the end of the day, this is a, this was not, a, for one, it was not an easy decision, but two, they, um, those below uh, Colonel, um, not Colonel, but uh, Brigadier General Green Clay did um, respect um, the decision going forward and something tells me that it's going to eat that that the decision that brigadier general green clay made something tells me that it's it was the right decision but uh what happened unexpectedly sometime shortly after 4 p.m on july 25th how about um mother nature getting in the way a thunderstorm took place yielding heavy rains, which resulted in a ceasefire. Who do you think that may have benefited? I don't know if it actually benefited any, anybody, but maybe it did benefit the Americans to a degree. But at the same time, you know, despite the fact that it's raining and all that, it doesn't mean that we are completely out of the woods just yet. However, the rains probably did prevent the British and the Indians from, um, from engaging us in uh, further action. And the reason I say that is because the day after, on July 26th, the numbers of uh, British and Indian warriors, they're not strong. In, in other words, the day before, there were more numbers. Now, a day later, the numbers have dwindled. They're starting to dwindle. However, their numbers do remain visible. I should say the presence of British troops and Indian warriors do remain visible to American forces, despite the numbers having dwindled. And by July 28th, the eighth day of the second siege at Fort Meigs, British troops and Indian allies had abandoned altogether. The British failed to take the fort by force, including trickery. In other words, they were trying this game of uh, coming near the fort and then backing away. They were trying to get the Americans, again, they were trying to get the Americans to open their gates, send the troops out to chase the British and the Indians. This time around, it didn't work. We didn't lose anybody. The siege itself now is entirely over. The losses on the American and British sides were minimal. Okay, I take it back there. We didn't, what I meant to say what by was that we didn't lose anyone, meaning that our numbers weren't um, drastic. And for the British, they were minimal, just like they were for the Americans. But if anybody's reputation has been um, negatively impacted by... Um, 
by the uh, failures in um, being able to take Fort Meigs, it is none other than Colonel uh, Henry Proctor. His status, or I should say reputation, amongst the Indian allies has uh, soured even further, simply in part because he was unable to fulfill his mission in capturing Fort Meigs. So, going forward, what is, how does Colonel Henry Proctor try to uh, persuade the Indians to stay the course? How does he persuade them to give him another chance? Well, I do remember from the first um, pod, from the uh, previous podcast episode the other night, how we um, learned about how Colonel Proctor wanted to attack a uh, military post at Lower Sandusky that was not very well uh, manned or fortified, and the Indians didn't want to go along with that. They they were so set on uh, retaking Fort Meigs above everything else, option-wise. Well, for Colonel Henry Proctor, he did set his eyes once again on the, on the American military post at Lower Sandusky, uh, this was pursued as a means of trying to improve upon his not-so-good image with Indian allies. So, what is the name of the fort at Lower Sandusky? And just real quick, if some of you are wondering where, you know, I've mentioned before about Sandusky, Ohio, being halfway between Toledo and Cleveland. Lower Sandusky is um, right near uh, Fremont, um, in Sandusky County. So, uh, in case any of y'all are wondering where exactly uh, Lower Sandusky is, it's um, it's located in uh, it's right near uh, Fremont, Ohio, but in uh, Sandusky County. So, yes, this um, strategy was uh, seen as a means of trying to improve upon his not so good um, standing um, image at the moment with the Indian allies. As for the fort that's located at Lower Sandusky, that is known as Fort Stevenson, S-T-E-P-H-E-N-S-O-N. Fort Stevenson is commanded by Major George Krogan, whom had 160 troops under his helm. Now, George Krogan um, comes from a um, family who has lots of uh, connections, connections where um, extended family members have... um, have performed, I don't know if I'd say performed is the right word, but have achieved uh, remarkable things. It turns out that one of uh, George Krogan's maternal uncles was none other was none other than uh, William Clark, aka uh, the Lewis and Clark expedition that went all the way to the Pacific uh, coast uh, via the Louisiana Purchase, um, that where the United States had gotten. Um, where the size of the United States was uh, doubled. So yes, folks, believe it or not, George Krogan is uh, related to that uh, fellow named uh, William Clark, who teamed up with uh, Meriwether Lewis in 1804 uh, to begin what was a three-year expedition uh, that began, um, I think, in St. Louis, Missouri it was, or what we know is present-day St. Louis, Missouri, and went all the way to um, the Pacific uh, Coast or the Pacific Ocean into uh, Washington State and uh, present-day Washington State and Oregon. And there is a place in uh, New York State in the uh, Tug Hill region uh, 
a couple years ago, my wife and I vacationed in the Thousand Islands region. Uh, we visited the Tug Hill region, which is uh, which is comprised of uh, places like Lowellville and uh, Oswego. Uh, but there is a place called uh, Krogan, New York, which is named after, in honor of uh, Major George Krogan. And uh, and his uh, father, I want to say, his father was also uh, George uh, Krogan Sr., whom uh, had whom uh, had lots of uh, military uh, who yes who had a lot of uh, military uh, background in him as well so uh, the Krogan family it would be fair to say uh, had uh, definitely passed down uh, the 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 uh, genes for being in uh, the military uh, to say the least so yes uh, Major George Krogan has 160 troops under his helm General Harrison not long after learning of the uh, British and Indian advancements under uh, Colonel Proctor, General Harrison sent instructions to Major Krogan advising him to abandon the fort and retreat as soon as possible. However, Harrison's message arrived late. Given the Indians under uh, Colonel Proctor were already at the fort, Major Krogan decided to stay put and engage the enemy before them. This to me, this took a lot of guts. You know, you have only 160 troops at your um, under your helm, and you're facing a, a force that's got far more numbers than you do. And you have to wonder. I mean, most people would think, well, if you only have 160 troops under your watch and you're you're dealing with a force that it may not be at a thousand. Well, maybe it could be at a thousand, but if obviously if the numbers are bigger than what you have in terms of 160 troops, yeah, it would be fair to say that the other side has the advantage. Well, I learned something um, very powerful uh, with regards to this situation. Okay, July 31st, 1813, uh, the primary corps of British troops had arrived in the lower Sandusky. Colonel Proctor sent a rep and uh, Colonel Elliott under a truce flag, meaning a um, non-fighting, you know, when the truce flag, it's a white flag that represents uh, non-hostilities. Non so Colonel Elliott requested, per uh, Colonel Proctor's instructions, to surrender Fort Stevenson at once. Ensign Ship, uh, who was the representative for, um, Major, um, for Major George Krogan, declined the request. So on August the 1st, of 1813, Colonel Proctor started attacking the post with light artillery but got nowhere. August 2nd, the Americans counterattacked with results. I wonder what kind of results, but something tells me that these could be results that are um, powerful results, to say the least. Just how bad um, were British forces... Uh, including their Indian allies beaten at Fort Stevenson. Severe. All right, not only just severe folks, but uh, British and Indian and their Indian allies, well, I should say British forces and their Indian allies were routed. I want uh, th That's how I want to put it. Um, it. The Indians folks left immediately following the first shots of American cannons being fired upon them. Whereas the British troops were trapped in the ditch, which meant they had little means of escaping harm's way. 96. 
What's uh, important about the number of ni- the number 96 here, folks? That's the total number of British soldiers r- being roughly a third of the regulars that were either killed, wounded, or captured. Colonel Proctor ordered the retreat and went about returning his remaining forces back to Canada. The second invasion of the Northwest was seen as a great failure. Proctor's retreat marked the end of British presence in Ohio during the War of 1812. Man, to think not long ago he had he was running on all eight cylinders, or I should say moving on all eight cylinders in Michigan. Uh, he had um, he and, and the Indian allies uh, were able to um, engage in these tactics where they came up to the fort and and then uh, fell back quickly. Um, basically confusing Brigadier General William Hull to the point that even Hull himself didn't know how to respond, and in the end, Hull surrendered without putting up a fight, a cowardly action, to say the least. Well, that didn't happen here at Fort Meigs, and it certainly didn't happen at Fort Stevenson. A complete 360 reversal. You know, you know. again, Colonel Henry Proctor was on all eight cylinders, moving on all eight cylinders, moving on all eight cylinders in in the Michigan Territory and taking the fight south to Ohio. He has has, uh, witnessed a a revival of the American Army. But who's to say, but I think it's fair to say that this revival of the American Army also had to do with uh, better leadership compared to what uh, went on in Michigan, in the Michigan Territory. Uh, Following the British forces retreating back to Canada on top of Commodore Oliver Hazard Perry's victory on Lake Erie, giving the American Navy firm control over the the lake, what action did General Harrison pursue going forward? Uh, General Harrison's long-awaited objective. Ah, I think we mentioned something earlier about a long-awaited objective. Well, this long-awaited objective behind invading Canada now became all the more feasible. It's now far more likely to be done than it was, say, at the start of 1813. August 1813 saw General Harrison begin to gradually amass troops from a handful of posts, forts in the northwest, most notably from Fort Meigs, and preparing for a Canadian invasion. Mid-August of 1813 saw Brigadier General Green Clay and General Harrison each agree to reduce troop size at Fort Meigs. The majority of the existing structures were to be burned and broken apart. The uh, smaller stockade uh, would replace the large fortification, take over existing blockhouse in the northwest corner of the larger fort. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with reducing the size of of troops at Fort Meigs now because the British have left Ohio. They are now on the run back north into Canada. We'll still keep some troops at Fort Meigs, but we're just not going to need as many. But we're going to obviously want to take more troops with us to Canada because we, you know, we do want to deliver a knockout blow. I don't know at this point if we could really end this war altogether, but if we could take the fight into Canada, which Harrison now knows he's got the momentum, and if we can uh, beat the British and uh, Canadian militiamen on their soil, uh, being that of the Canadian militiamen, then we can really say that we've stuck a dagger in their hearts. 
Uh, how long did it take for U.S. troops and engineers to go about making the necessary repair modifications to Fort Meigs? Interesting enough, it took just around two weeks, folks. August 21st was the starting point. September 5th, the new fort nearly done, with the majority of the older structure gone. Tell you, teamwork does pay off, especially uh, when it's able, well, regardless of when the task can get done, but if you can get it done nearly in nearly two weeks, when you consider uh, the equipment or whatever um, they had at their, um, at their use in 1813, take their hats off to them. Uh, September 20th, General, Henry, General William Henry Harrison's army transported by Commodore Perry's flotilla, a.k.a. fleet, to Putin Bay on South Bass Island. Uh, September 26th, General Harrison joined, the, co joined Commodore Perry aboard a smaller vessel in the uh, Ariel, where they sailed for the Detroit River to find out or obtain more information on the approach to Amherstburg. And the evening of September 26th confirmed General Harrison's passage for attack was secured to go. So, in other words, he was able to secure, secure enough intelligence or enough, um, enough uh, what do you call it? He did his homework, let's put it that way. And by doing his homework, he was able to um, confirm enough per the sources that an attack on um, Amherstburg was uh, definitely um, doable, that um, that making his way into Amherstburg uh, could be done. September 27th at 3 p.m., Commodore Perry's fleet landed General Harrison's army three miles south of Amherstburg. Believe it or not, folks, British forces are nowhere to be found. So Harrison's forces entered unopposed. You know, you would think that maybe Colonel Proctor would have had, you know, a couple of uh, guardsmen on the lookout. But at this point in, in time, folks, I think it's fair to say that morale is very, very low in the British Army. And especially for the Indians. I think it's fair to say that, that a lot of Indian warriors have given up. They just don't see any means in fighting anymore. And it might be fair to say that a fair number of uh, Canadian militiamen are more concerned about going back home and tending to their farms and being with their families. But yes, there are Canadian, um, I'm sure there are Canadian troops still in the fight. There are plenty of British troops that are, and there are still plenty of Indian warriors that want to, um, that don't want to surrender just yet, or they, they still, they still have something in them to fight for, but it is fair to say that um, that morale has uh, reached a, an all-new low. If you're on the side of the British, that had not had not even been thought of. That could even have occurred, especially given that they were, um, you know, feeling ever so high after capturing Forts Michilimackinac as well as um, Detroit. I think they pretty much felt invincible, that nothing was going to stop them, even as they were going to make their way into Ohio. And never once in a million years did they ever think that they probably would be forced into having to retreat back northward. Well, sometimes, uh, folks, um, the opposite happens to a superior force 
when they when they least expected it and it's probably fair to say that um here the british uh, army is like a goliath but now they're the ones being slewed they got slewed in ohio by a david being uh being general william henry harrison who represents david well given that uh colonel henry proctor did not have supplies on hand to sufficiently provide for his troops as well as no reinforcements coming, what plans or course would he have to take? Colonel Proctor chose to go away from the Thames River and instead embark upon a defensible place better suited in engaging Harrison's forces. After spotting Commodore Perry's vessel Ariel along the Detroit River on September 26th, Colonel Proctor's army went about destroying all of, his equi all of their equipment, including supplies, and bridges in the midst of retreating. You know, sometimes it's foolish to think, well, why would you want to burn your equipment? Why would you want to burn the supplies? Aren't you going to need that stuff at a later point? You would think so. But it also could be, given that Colonel Proctor does not have, he doesn't have an adequate amount of supplies to sufficiently provide for his troops, if he knows he doesn't have a whole lot left, then what's the point in keeping what is available, knowing that within a few days' time, the, those uh, rations or supplies could be completely gone? It, it, there's, there's just a lot of um, uncertainty now facing uh, Colonel Henry Proctor, and when, and when you're dealing with a lot of uncertainty and you aren't able to uh, deal with it properly, I think it's fair to say that you could make a lot of bad choices. A lot of bad choices that um, that over time will come back and get you. So in the midst of their retreat, the British troops weren't able to achieve all of their objectives. They had failed to destroy many uh, vital bridges beyond, San beyond a vil the village of Sandwich, thus enabling the American army to reach the entrance of the Thames River prior to sunset on October 2nd of 1803, I mean of 1813, rather I should say, pardon me. October 3rd, the Americans uh, seized small work group of British troops. It seems like nothing is stopping uh, Harrison's troops now. Harrison has arrived into Canada at the right place, and more so at the right time. What came about on October 5th of 1813? For starters, General Harrison got approached by an informant advising that the British Army was already lined up and ready for combat. Secondly, after meeting his opponent, being Colonel uh, Henry Proctor, General Harrison gave orders for... General Harrison gave orders for his mounted soldiers on horseback to engage the British infantry, including infantrymen attacking the Indians in the swamp. I know, you're probably thinking, a swamp in Canada? Yes. And I know when, uh, from a much earlier podcast segment episode, we talked about the Black River uh, Swamp uh, in northwest Ohio that uh, Brigadier General William Hull um, tried to... Um, that Brigadier General William Hull's forces uh, 
navigated through but had to get uh, permission from the uh, Indian tribes uh, living in that uh, area. But the bottom line is, you know, swamp swamps exist and swamps aren't always confined to uh, tropical places. Maybe that's uh, the maybe that's the most um, important thing to get out of this is that sometimes it's easy to think that when we hear like the term swamp, we think of uh, warmer climates. But, you know, we do have to be reminded that even swamps do exist up north when least expected. Now, uh, General Harrison instructed his troops as they charged into combat by shouting a chant or rally cry of, Remember the Raisin, a.k.a. the River Raisin. Well, for those of you who have been with me this whole time for this uh, book topic uh, series, I do remember mentioning to you all from an earlier podcast segment episode that back in January of 1813, um, the rally cry of Remember the Raisin evolved. Uh, it was on January 23rd of 1813 when um, those American troops whom were left behind at Frenchtown, whom, um, whom were recovering from their um, wounds from the uh, battle, they were left behind uh, simply because the British, um, British forces did not have the means to be able to uh, transport the wounded uh, prisoners over... Um, they did transport some of the uh, wounded prisoners, but not all of them. There were um, a handful that wanted to stay behind, and sadly they met a terrible death, not by uh, natural causes, that, um, not by painful natural causes, we'll put it that way, but they died at the hands of uh, the Indians, uh, the Indians uh, massacring them in the middle of the night or in the middle of the morning, I should say. So, yes, about 65 American troops, folks, were brutally massacred at Frenchtown along the River Raisin. And so for those uh, 65 American troops whom were brutally massacred, uh, pretty much all of them were Kentuckians, or from uh, men from Kentucky, I should say, the rally cry um, that Harrison instructed his troops to shout at the... Uh, British uh, soldiers and their Indian allies was remember the raisin. In other words, we haven't forgotten what you all did to our fellow uh, brothers. Now it's our turn to inflict the revenge, to inflict to inflict the pain on you on you guys. That's the uh, unfortunate thing about war, I guess, is that you know one side hurts the other, the other side wants to engage in, in payback. And it does have uh, profound consequences for both sides, but this is what Harrison wanted. I mean, he's he's um, he's got all the momentum on his side. He wants to stick it to Colonel Henry Proctor, and he wants to stick it to him on Canadian soil. The Battle of the Thames, aka Moravian Town, took place in Upper Canada near Chatham. The battle did not last very long. Given the British infantry, for one, got outnumbered, and secondly, they, the British infantry was not properly supplied, resulting in their firing only three volleys before surrendering. The Indians, on the other hand, fought more valiantly, but the death of their leader, a.k.a. Prophet Commander Tecumseh, Tecumseh was shot and killed, folks. He was killed. And Tecumseh's death resulted in, in an end to the battle altogether 
an hour and a half after the entire British line surrendered. Really, folks, it took Tecumseh's death to end it all, to end everything here at the Battle of the Thames or Moravian Town. The British and Indian defeat at the Battle of the Thames was so severe, it was, a, it was so severe of a blow, given that Detroit now fell back into American hands. The British lost complete control over all of Lake Erie. The American victory at the Thames set the course for the end of all military operations in the Northwest Campaign during the War of 1812. General William Henry Harrison, folks, was really the right man at the right time to um, to take uh, command of the uh, Northwest Campaign, given just how bad things began for us in Michigan. And here, Colonel Henry Proctor had all the momentum on his side. And what do you know? When he went southward into Ohio, he... Um, he uh, got to um, see um, a taste of um, what I would say a reversal of fortune. In other words, he had all the momentum going into Ohio and a complete 360 flip occurred. All of that momentum was sucked right out of him. Two failed siege sieges at Fort Meigs, then being defeated on a, then being defeated on Canadian soil at the Thames or Moravian town. I don't know if we have full 100% momentum in this uh, forgotten conflict, but as of right now in uh, late 1813, the Americans are enjoying momentum. They finally have something good to feel about, knowing that, you know, here we may not have the most, uh, what do you call it? We may not have the best army, but we have a far more modified army, thanks to General William Henry Harrison. So we are moving in the right direction. But I do have to wonder going forward now that after this Northwest campaign comes to an end, the fight will still drag on, given that uh, the War of 1812 saw three, um, a three-pronged tier invasion of Canada. The fight will move, eventually move eastward into the Niagara frontier, and then eventually the Chesapeake campaign. But uh, what I do know is that we've covered a lot of ground. But then again, we've always covered a lot of ground, which is never a bad thing. When I'm on the air again next, uh, we will be uh, discussing the epilogue to Men of Patriotism, Courage, and Enterprise, Fort Meigs in the War of 1812. It sure has been a great journey. And like all other journeys, they do have to end at some point because we do have to make way for new uh, journeys that will soon be um, down the road to embark upon. Well, thank you for your time. As always, I look forward to being back on the air with you all and wherever you all may live, uh, continue to stay safe. And thank you for being such ardent listeners. Without you guys, I don't know where I would be, but thank you again as always. Take care for now and stay safe.